Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. It's one of those things where if you see magic in a room and, and we, you know, you, you, you actors read together and you do tests like either on tape or in a room with a bunch of people and everyone has an opinion and you're looking for a chemistry and you're looking for a, a spark, you just never know. And literally they did that first scene and it was truly, it was one of those moments in your career you do remember. It was just undeniable. All right, my guest today, I am incredibly excited about having him here because he's one of the most respected executives in the television business. You know, I first knew him when he was the president of Columbia TriStar, the merge with Sony. I knew him when he then went to Michael Ovitz's company, ATG. And I've also known him throughout incarnations of having his own company, partnering with Mitch Hurwitz, who created Arrested Development. And him and his wife have their own company, and now they are executive producers for the past 10 years of probably one of the most successful shows on television, Two and a Half Men. Please welcome everybody, a guy who really helped me uh, a lot in my career, Eric Tannenbaum. Thank you very much for having me, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to see you as always. All right. We got a lot to talk about. <laughs> I wanted to just start with something that I thought would be really beneficial to people. Take me back a while ago before you were ever in this business. Tell me what you were doing before the instinct came over you. Like, hey, I'd like to be in the entertainment business. Was there a job you were doing? Were you in some job and you were like, God, I got to get into this business. And how did you make your way into your first job in the business? And what was that? Brings back memories is looking out of your office. I'm looking up where I grew up, which is Beverly Hills, not that far. And I, and uh, my dad was in the business for years. I don't know if you ever knew my dad, uh, but he was one of sort of the pioneer executives. He was the head of many studios. And when I was a kid, I was- Now I am old, but I'm I know, not but you're I have gout. I have gout right now, so pretty much I shouldn't be your dad. Um, and, I and you grew up in Beverly Hills. I did. And, and, and you went to Beverly Hills High, High School? School? Looking at it right now. Um, wow. And so when my dad was at places like Paramount and Universal and did shows like Kojak and the Brady Bunch and the Odd Couple, I never really knew what he did. But I remember going to the set of the Brady Bunch and seeing that staircase that led to nowhere and being in the house and meeting all those people. And 
I loved the odd couple as a kid for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, it was sort of always in, in, in the blood of the family, but I never really truly understood what it meant or what he did because he wasn't the kind of guy to, to talk a lot about it. In those days, there was three networks and four studios, and he was one of the heads of those places. And, and yet, so I, I kind of grew up around it. Always thought I was going to be in some capacity. He desperately did not want me to be in the entertainment business. He begged me to go be a lawyer, do anything but. Why, why was that? I, just because he knew, you know, he wouldn't come home and talk about it. He just knew how hard it was, you know, and he just knew that, you know, it's a, mostly, as you and I know, a business of disappointment and failure. You're always <laughs> pushing rocks up a hill and. We're going to talk a lot about right, those but that's the nature parents. of our business and and the, the survivors and I think he was one of them, you know, and he, and he was in lots of different jobs, pick themselves off and dust themselves off, and and he was a salesman, which is what you've been for your life and what I've been and, and different versions too, and he knew how to deal with people, and I think that is kind of the core of what we both done for all of our business. You, you treat people well. Everybody liked my dad. Um, always said good things about him, but again, until I got a little bit older, and so when I came back. In between college, I went to school back east. I worked at William Morris one summer. What did you do at William Morris? In the mail, in the mail room. And, uh, you Talk know, about the mail room at William Morris because for those of you who don't know, I, I, I remember a guy, a, a producer that I uh, I knew in New York. His name was Bill Persky. Oh, sure. Famous and, writer. And he's a famous writer and he created, I believe, Kate, Kate and Alley. And he was a friend of my dad's. I once talked to him because he told me that he started in the William Morris mailroom. And the, and the mailroom was – it was like a, a breeding ground for some of the greatest people in the business. And he told me that on the set of Kane and Alley, two of the people from the mailroom that used to deliver scripts to him on the set were Barry Diller and Michael Ovitz. And he told me that even then, at 21-year-old kids, they scared him. <laughs> you know, they, he could tell that they were going to be somebody who was going to do great things. And here you are. You worked in the mailroom, and you did what, great what things. What I quickly found out is that I did not want to be an agent. But what I did find out is you were exposed as the – like was the epicenter. I mean, they were, it was the place. And there was all the you – know, some people in the mailroom were 35 and 40 years old who had multiple college degrees and PhDs and doctors and gave it up to make $300 a week to go deliver mail to people. So you got to meet everybody. You got a sense of what everybody did. And there was all these departments. And I'd seen some of the higher up people there because my friends of my dad's that I met over the years, but it had really no idea what they did. But all of a sudden you're exposed to this great amount of activity and information and, and things. And I quickly decided it would be much more fun to be what they called was dispatch. And dispatch was the guys that got to go with it, you know, drive around and take the scripts to people. But you also realize as you were taking a lot of personal packages to stars and talent, you're meeting people and knocking on their door at all hours of the night. And so it was crazy. And then many people that I did this sort of internship are, are now still in this business in different capacities. And there's one agent today who will go nameless that was banned from the Disney lot because he shot a rubber band at the security guard. I mean, it was just all craziness and fun. As a Tell me some of the big stars that you delivered scripts to and like it might be like three in the morning or something. Tell me some of the people that you remember like you're like, holy I can't believe that I get to deliver to this guy. I remember some of the Charlie's Angels. I remember uh, David Hasselhoff. I remember like, you know, those kinds of like TV stars were iconic people. And a lot of times you had to get through someone to get through someone to get to a third person. But it was just crazy. And for a young kid who never done this, and so you're meeting and you're going to all the studios and you're going to all these directors and producers and stars' house. And it was just a fascinating experience. But what it, it the, the knowledge it gave me was, okay, I now can you start asking enough questions? I understand what an agent's role was, what a studio's role was, what a producer's role was. And all of a sudden you're starting to put, you know, someone have never had no experience to start to connect the dots and put the pieces together. That was my first summer job. My next real job was uh, when I graduated college, I didn't, you know, I knew I wanted to do something. And 
my dad had a very dear friend named Ned Tannen who was deceased, but he was one of the, the great film executives of, of all time and a, and a lovely man. And I, I went to his office. I drove out there and he's like, okay, great. You, you, know, you need to learn what happens on a set. And so he literally, like, you literally you leave in two days. And like two days later, he sent me to Florida to work on a very bad movie called The Whoopie Boys. Um, that was, I don't even know if it was ever released. Um, in Florida, and I was going to be a PA, and basically you're working to 18 to 20 hours a day. Explain to the audience what a PA does, because the PA on a movie set and a, a television set, it's one of the few things that are almost exactly the same. So uh, My first job was uh, to basically do anything they told me to do, but this movie starred Paul Rodriguez, who went on to be a friend of mine, who was a famous comedian, but kind of a crazy guy at the time, the height of his fame, was to have to find him in the middle of the night, because... He'd have to be taken to the set at five in the morning. He was just getting home. So you'd be wondering which club and I'd have to go find him at these places. I'd never been to Florida in my life. So now I'm trying to drive, navigate my way around Miami, find out where Paul's going to be or whose bed he's going to be in or which place he's going to come from. Um, there was a, a comedian actress named Marshall Warfield who was at the time on Night Court and, and no, you know, no one could find her. And so basically my job was having to round up the cast and wake them up at four or five in the morning, which is none too pleasant to try to get them down to the set. Um, and then it's anything from copying scripts to getting food for the directors. And uh, the director's girlfriend was in it at the time, and they were always fighting. It was just one of those kind of places. But I, I met a few producers that I liked and uh, people throughout. And it just I learned now, okay, now what it's like to be on a set. You learn what you know, who's really in charge, looking at how many, you know, what the script is and how it's changing and, and, and watching all that kind of stuff. And I then realized I, I didn't really want to be on a set every day. That wasn't necessarily the thing for me unless I was really going to be in a position of having some control. So that for me was like, you know, goal number one. And I came back after that and, and looked for jobs and looked for jobs. And fortunately, through a series of connections, but also a friend of my dad's, um, he sent me over to a fledgling company called New World Entertainment. And there was a young guy there who had just taken over the TV company named John Feldheimer, um, who fortunately for me ended up becoming a, a, a quasi-brother and a mentor and a father figure for me. And I ended up working with him for almost 20-some-odd years. And John now uh, runs, uh, well... He's the chairman of Lionsgate. Chairman of Lionsgate. You know, and the stock just had a record-breaking number, and he's one of the great executives in the business. And I literally started by, you know, he says, yeah, I'll find something for you. And he says, kind of just go sit over here in the corner. And uh, I took his clean into the laundry. I got his cars washed. I made sure, you know, that his flowers were in his house and all that kind of stuff. And slowly over the course of time, as I was just sitting around his office, he would say, He'd throw a script at me. He'd just read this and tell me what you think about it. Or, you know what, can you just call this guy back? Or, you know what, someone's coming in, just go sit and, and, and over the course of time. For those of you listening and watching, it's like, you know, when you're starting, it's sort of like a relationship between a woman and a man. Normally, what a, a woman wants in a relationship is she wants to feel safe. And when you're an assistant or somebody starting out with somebody that big, all they want to do is feel safe. They want to know that everything that happens, everything you touch is done perfectly the way they would want it, sometimes even better the, than the way they want it. And once they start feeling safe, they start throwing you certain little things and say, okay, I'll throw in the script. I'm the, it's not life or death. And then if you come back and you bring something in that's great or say this is great and it is great, then he has more trust in you. And that's how it normally works. And so that's how you, so you knew instinctually right away to go the extra mile. Absolutely. And, and as I said, I, I built that trust with him and he had had me be someone's assistant for a while, uh, who worked for the company who was, became a longtime friend of mine, but I was not a very good assistant and no one could read my writing. So I realized that wasn't the, the sort of thing. So I went back and just 
started spending time with John and really understanding. He just he basically what I didn't know because I wasn't aware enough at the time was basically paying me to go to graduate school. I was getting to watch someone who was really good at what they do and learn and listen and be part of things. And he, and, and he just trusted me and liked me and, and knew that I cared about it. And so I read every script that came to the door. I made sure I got to meet every single person spent the extra hours of sort of doing the work that needed to be done to educate myself and to trying to sort of understand what this meant. And we were, they were just starting a show called The Wonder Years of the Time, which was a very expensive uh, show that no one was period and it was single camera. And this was a company they were, they were, you know, New did not have a lot of money at the time and they were spending a lot of money to deficit that, this that show. That was uh, Marlins and Black Marlins who and created Black. that. And the- Mark Hirschfeld, who was a guest on this podcast, uh, was uh, the casting director at the time. Uh, absolutely, and, and Neil and Carol, very talented people, but not ultimately, you know, people that or wanted to collaborate that much with other people. So they just went off and wrote this script, and everyone thought it was brilliant. But at the time, this was a, a new company, and you know, they were, you know, their money was, was was select. They were not a major studio with huge dollars to be able to spend and devastating all these shows. But everybody thought there was something special there, and then. We were doing a show called Sledgehammer, which again at the time was sort of groundbreaking. It was uh, David Rashi as a sort of crazy kind of get smarty kind of character. And uh, and they were doing a show called Tour of Duty, which was sort of a, a Vietnam show. We were shooting in Hawaii. And so all of a sudden all this sort of stuff was happening. There weren't that many people there. So I just was kind of given more and more stuff to do. And uh, you know, I looked up and by the time I was in my mid to late 20s, I was you know basically responsible for a lot of stuff. And we were out doing a lot of things. And then ultimately as, as – you know, the company was sold to, to Columbia and uh, we then sort of all moved together and, 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 you know, moved on to sort of running that place. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Tell me how you went from doing these multitasking roles at New World to becoming the president of Columbia TriStar and then Sony. How does something like that happen? How do you make the leap from somebody who's basically delivering scripts and uh, delivering flowers and uh, to people and chasing down Paul Rodriguez and Marsha <laughs> Warfield to being the president, the guy who is running the joint? Uh, it's a combination. There's no perfect answer, as you know. There's no science or, 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 or exact path to any of these jobs. But I, again, I was fortunate enough to have somebody in John who over the years really started to trust me. And as he started to rise up the ranks, he felt he wanted someone that was an extension of him and yet had ideas of their own. And I was always interested in, in what those sort of ideas were. And when, and, and our business, the writer, the TV business is a really writer driven business and it always has been. And, 
So I really became interested in writers and I cultivated relationships with every young agent in town and, uh, and, and as many writers as I could. And I read every writer and I was just interested in, in what they had to say. And then also interested in coming up with ideas and concepts and things that I felt like weren't done, before, you know, weren't on at the time. And, and as I said, no, no direct correlation other than I really cared about what I did. I worked really hard. Um, and we started to have some success. I made a, uh, I made a deal early on. Uh, there was a comedian named Paul Reiser who had just come off a show called My Two Dads. And, uh, you know, I met with him and liked him. And an agent called me and said, you should meet him. And he wasn't the hottest guy in the world, but I really was a fan of his and thought he was funny. And a lot of times, as you know, what's fascinating about stand-up comedians who become leads in sitcoms, one of the major statistics that's unbelievable is that there isn't one instance that I know of of any stand-up comedian who got the lead in their own sitcom that went the show went to syndication at least a hundred episodes that hasn't or hadn't been doing comedy at least ten years. Right. It's like maybe you could say the Wayans brothers, but they weren't really doing stand-up at the time. So any Roseanne from you know Brett Butler to Paul Reiser to Seinfeld, Ray Romano, everyone, a minimum of 10 years. Perfecting their craft. And a lot of times, the people that you make deals with who are comedians are not the hottest people. The hottest comedians are rarely the ones that can get a show going. Right. It's the ones that are gutting it out. It's not that they're not respected. It's just that they've gutted out, they have a point of view, which is the most important thing, which I want you to talk about, and they're normally the ones that will make the hit show. And and, and that point of view word is, is such an often overused word, but it really is true, and, and the guys that had really had something to talk about that was in them and personal to them. There's a lot of funny people, and we've all been to clubs, and you're the expert of all experts on this, and you know talent. But then when someone really, if you feel like they have something to talk about and a subject matter that interests them. And so I had met with Paul and I liked him and knew him from his other show, but it was never, you know, wasn't a, a benchmark kind of show. And he came in, I'll never forget, and he shut the door and he said, I just got married. And he said, we went on this great honeymoon and I came back and I shut the door to my new, my new house. I walked in, I looked at my wife and I realized, holy shit, that's the rest of my life. And he said, that's the show I want to do. I want to show when you, when you make that decision, you come home and you, then all of a sudden now you're looking down the barrel of, Oh, wait a minute. It's just us. And now what? There's no handbook for it. There's no, no one ever told you how to do it. And now you two people have to sort of say, this is our life together. And you got to create this life. And that, wow, that's a great place to, as a jumping off point for a show. And he really wanted to do it as a little movie every week and a little play. And we had huge arguments because at the time nobody was doing uh really single camera shows and they weren't working. They were, you know, people wanted to do sitcoms, but Paul was so scarred from coming off my two dads. think it wasn't the quality that he had, had, had signed on for that. He wanted to do the show like, the, you know, in that single camera way with, you know, without a laugh track and all that stuff. And we fought, and we fought, and we fought, and we fought and we fought and it took almost two years to get the show developed. And we finally did it. We brought in a great writer named Danny Jacobson, who was a brilliant mind. But not till the hundredth episode party did Paul lean over. He's not a big guy to say, "Well, thank you." We're not one of those. That's just not who he is. And he pulled me aside and said, "I just want to say thank you." This was years later. I'm like, "What?" He says, "You convinced me to do this as a sitcom, and I made it great." And uh, so that was his acknowledgement of, you know, that at least on some one occasion I was right. And so at that point in time, you know, we talk about the failures and the disappointments. But what's kind of fascinating, your career. Up to that point, from when you started as a PA up until then, 
not a lot of disappointment, not a lot of failure. So you're, you're on, your career is on kind of a roll. And even though your dad had told you, listen, I, I don't want you in this business because I know, you know, what's that thing from Batman? Decent people shouldn't live here. Right. So you, you have this thing where things are going really well and there's not really anything you're sort of saying to yourself, Hey man, this business is, this is a piece of cake, man. It's just one thing I'm rising. I'm rising. I'm the president. So tell me about the first time you got your legs taken out from under you and the, where you really like just you realized, holy, shit, this business will squash you like a bug. Uh, I had this idea at the time I was living, you know, this was during all this time. There was a very hot radio show in Los Angeles and they're still on the air. Their names are Mark and Brian. I don't know if you remember these yes, guys. Yes, of course. And looking back on it now, we were actually really ahead of the reality curve when no one was doing it, but I was just a fan. I listened to these guys every day driving to work and I thought, you know, I'm just going to go meet them. I'm going to call them up. They don't know me. I don't have, they don't have an agent. I'm just going to go. And I, and I tracked them down and I got to become friends with them and go watch their radio show. And I said, Hey, there's a TV show on you guys. And this is nobody was doing any kind of reality stuff, certainly no comedy reality. And somehow I sold this show and I put it together and I got all these pieces together and it was called The Adventures of Mark and Brian on, on NBC. And it was a huge deal. And, and the, <laughs> the funny part of the show was I remember we, on a Saturday morning, Brandon Tardock off the late genius and all of his people came over to screen the Talk pilot. Talk about just real briefly to explain to our audience Brandon Tardikoff, what he was doing at the time because I think it's important. Brandon was the, the chairman of NBC and, and one of the true true great pioneers in the history of the television business. And a visionary. A very young man. A very young man and a, a wonderful human being and, ex and executive. And, you know, at the time they were doing shows like Cheers and Hill Street Blues. I mean, that's quality. And, and, and somehow we snuck this little offbeat comedy of two guys who weren't actors that were going around doing crazy stunts and we we're going to get a TV show on NBC. And we screened the pilot at, uh, at New World on like a Saturday morning. All they came over, Brandon, all the team. And I remember I was in the, in the bathroom in New World and I was in the stall and he, he walked in and he didn't know I was there. And, uh, uh, he and some executives were in there and, and I heard him say, Holy shit, these guys have no talent. What are we going to do with this? And I, like literally that moment, I thought my career was over. <laughs> and uh, somehow they put the show on. Did you, did you walk out of the stall? Oh, no, one of those things. You I, I spent everything. This was like my thing. I was so proud of him. So excited. <laughs> I was getting on NBC and I, these guys and I love them. And I just literally at that moment, you every ounce of you is deflated because the, the guy. And yet even when he said they have no talent, the show's terrible. We're going to put it on the air. And he did. And of course it died. Uh, that, that was a moment where I literally thought, okay, this is, this is not going well anymore. This, I got to reevaluate. Um, That's but awesome. that, you know, it's the nature of our business. What a great story. Um, can you just real briefly go back and tell me about the casting of the Paul Ariser uh, experience? Yeah, it was it was one of those I, things. I so, think that's uh, something that could be interesting for people. So it was one of those things when you're writing a script with somebody and for somebody, and, and as I said, the, a great writer and a good friend named Danny Jacobson and Paul, and it took some time for them to sort of get together and, and create this show, but they're two guys writing the show, and clearly the Paul character was really well defined and, uh, and, and we were kind of trying to figure out who was going to be the woman. And it was still kind of under the radar, a small idea, but it was also set up at NBC and they loved the idea of it, but it was only about if we could find that, that magic. And, uh, now I'm totally blanking on her name, of course, but I will think of it in a second. Um, the woman from Lois and Clark was in Desperate Housewives. Uh, oh my God, I can't believe I can remember her name. It will come to me in a second. It was the woman that everybody wanted for the show. And, we took her to NBC to read the scene, but we also this someone had said, you know, let's bring in a second person. 
there was this you know young actress named Helen Hunt, and she had done this like TV movie about like high school cheerleaders, football players. Like she hadn't done that much, but everyone thought she was a, she was a great actress. But she was really kind of there to be the the stocking horse and not be the one. And I think this is important to talk about the process of how these people get to the position of the studio and the network. And again, uh, uh, an unknown actress versus a, a 800 pound that... gorilla who's basically actress who's done like hundreds of episodes of television and what it takes for somebody to knock you guys on your asses and say, holy shit, I don't care that that person's done 300 episodes of television. This is the person. And it's one of those things where if you see magic in a room and, and we, you know, you, you, you actors read together and you do tests either on tape or in a room with a bunch of people and everyone has an opinion and you're looking for a chemistry and you're looking for a spark. And the literally the second, and we had, for whatever reason, we hadn't really seen Helen do it before with Paul, but we'd all liked her and we thought she's very appealing and she seemed so honest and that girl next door and you, everybody could fall in love with her, but you just never know. And literally they did that first scene and it was true. It was one of those moments in your career you do remember. It was just undeniable with it, just the two of them. You felt like this was a couple that could survive the test of time that you just knew those people were so deeply connected. And it was Terry Hatcher. Is a, I apologize. It was the woman I couldn't remember before who was a big TV star and, and still is. And everybody said, it's Terry and Paul, and that's just it, and we're done, but we just have to see it. And, and again, the, the dark horse came in being an unknown person, but it was it was undeniable to the 20-some-odd people in that room. Which is one of my favorite expressions, right. undeniable, and, because I feel if you can if you can create that, you, you can't You lose. have a shot. And, uh, and, and, you know, one of those things, like the rest is history, but they were just so good together, and we were able to do that show that really was small and intimate. And, and every person who talked to us about the show over the years later was always the comment was – Oh, that's me and my wife. Oh, my boyfriend and girl, you know, just had that conversation. Well, we had those similar kind of feelings and circumstances. I think that's a big part of TV. And it's, if you can connect to people and relate to them, you have a chance to have a hit. Yeah. And tell me some of the other shows you worked on at Sony and at Columbia TriStar that you were, that really made an impact on the country and the world. I don't know about the country or the world, but we had some success. Um, you know, we have, uh, I had a great, really fun experience with Fran Drescher and putting the nanny together. And at the time was a, a very successful show and she very strong going back to point of view and she knew who she was and what she wanted to do. And she wanted to be, you know, that kind of anti-mame kind of character. And it was, it was a show that ran for seven or eight years and was a lot of fun. Um, where did you find Fran? Uh, she had done a few things and, uh, had, had, come to us for a meeting and again it was just someone that who really knew who she was and she knew how to market herself and she wanted to play that that fantasy character fish out of water the poor girl in the big house and taking care of the kids and and it, it was it was the right idea for her and it was the right time for the show and, and brought friends of mine in to write it and create it with her and that they were all really connected and clicked and and, and we had a really good run um a few years later i was introduced to uh, a comedian named kevin james who was Kicking around, I'm sure you knew him over the years. Another example of a, a, a comedian been doing it over ten years. Had been a, a great college comedian. Had a tremendous routine that, was, to me, I, I love so much about uh, pantomiming the uh, getting a card for a girl in the store. It was just an amazing piece. But again, a guy who wasn't wasn't you know, known at all, wasn't out there, and it wasn't a household name, but. A person had a real point of view. And he was in a deal at NBC, and, and I had made a, a deal with a writer, another friend of mine, a very talented guy named Michael Whitehorn, who's one of the great writer-producers in the business, and he wrote this thing called The King Queens, and he wanted to write it for Kevin, and it was just really complicated because we were supposed to make it at NBC, but NBC did not want to make it, and I really believe in the show, and 
spent a lot of money to to get it out of NBC and 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 got CBS to say, hey, we'll take a shot on this guy and this script, and you know, it was kind of a flyer. But it was just one of those things where you sort of knew that sort of blue collary guy, a little bit of the anti-hero, you know, kind of thing. And you put him with a woman who married, maybe he married a little bit over his head and, and, you know, kind of thing. But he loved her, you know, and the reason why that show, that show I think really worked besides it being funny and Kevin was a huge talent is he loved that woman and wanted to do anything to make her happy. And, and it goes back to the Flintstones model it was that same kind of thing. And, you know, it's a, these, these shows tend to work when you have great actors, but there has to be a writer at the center, but who has a, who has a vision for what the story they want to tell. And, and, and Michael did and, and Fran and, and, and her people did and Danny and Paul did. And, and those are the shows. And I've been fortunate enough to be involved, in, you know, with two and a half men and Chuck did. And those are the ones that sort of have legs and, and can continue because they have something to talk about. One of the things that if you're a comic listening, that was heartbreaking about the business having to do with King of Queens. I remember that the pilot episode of King of Queens, the father was Jack Carter. It was. And Jack Carter was a legendary stand-up comedian, hadn't done that much acting, but still had done some work. He was probably close to 70 or over 70. And, and for him, this was one of the greatest opportunities of his career. And so you have a guy who had a long, prestigious career and one final hurrah goes in, does the pilot, has all great intentions, everything wonderful. This is the way to go out. I'm going to go out on top. And why don't you share what happened? You know, sadly, unfortunately, it happens a lot. It was a, it was a, a cast that they loved. And from the very beginning, Les and everybody had wanted Les Moonves. Les Moonves, a chairman of CBS. And a, friend and a mentor and, and, and he'd always had a vision of what he wanted for the show, but we couldn't get Jerry Stiller because Seinfeld was just kind of coming to a close and he didn't want to work that hard and he wanted to live in New York and be back with his wife. And, and we tried and we tried and we tried. We couldn't cast the part at the end. Everybody just sort of pushed through the idea of Jack Carter, who was a, an icon, a legend and a funny man, but it was, well, I'll remember, never forget the night of the experience. It was a very uh, close friend of mine, a director named Pam Fryman, who's one of the top directors in the business and incredible. the loveliest, loveliest person, incredible success. Um, we were there till 4.30 in the morning trying to get the performance and Jack and get his lines. It was just one of those things that everybody looked up and said, if we go to series, I don't think we can do this every week because it'll, it'll kill everybody. And Because he wasn't – he didn't have his mind, lines just, memorized. He just wasn't – just just wasn't clicking. It just was one of those things where you sort of saw the, the, the greatness and the chemistry of, of, of Kevin and Leah and how funny and, and that piece. It just – it felt like it was in a little bit of a different universe and uh, – you know, so you kind of knew that night that we were going to get that call. Hey, we'll do this, but guess what? We're going to replace it. And when we knew the series was going to be picked up, it enabled us to go back and and make a deal with Jerry. And originally, he was only going to do a certain amount of episodes. But as you know, when artists tend to fall in love with something and they become something and it feels natural to them, then they tend to want to do it more. And then and that's how that show happened. And we had to go back and reshoot the whole pilot. But it, you know, in the long run, you know, eight or nine years later, it worked out. And that's the lesson is that you, you know, when you go and just because you get a gig, just because you get a job doesn't mean you have the job because you got to go to the pilot. It's like literally the NFL, you know, you, you, you win your division and you're like, hey, we won the division. Oh, we have to play the wild card game. And then you play the wild card game. You're like, we won. And then you're like, okay, we have to play the next game until the Super Bowl. And you're in the Super Bowl. Hey, we haven't won the Super Bowl yet. And every time you go into any job, if you're an artist listening, no matter how old you are or how young you are, if you're an executive, 
every second, every frame, every moment that counts, you have to make count. I think it's really important. And, you know, a big, a big part of our job is we do, you know, a lot of casting things and a lot of our new shows and pilots and you do table readings, and you do auditions and you have to bring it every time because unfortunately there's so much pressure on these things and the, the, the value and the price to get these things happen. And it's so, unfortunately, so many actors get replaced after table readings and run through because they're sort of saving it and waiting, you know, waiting for a tape night or a very famous night. story is news radio. Ray Romano was cast in his first television role as the maintenance guy in uh, news radio. And he went to the table read after the table read, got the call that he was fired and he was replaced with Joe Rogan. Mm. So comedians oftentimes experience a lot of, uh, and again, the disappointments and the failures. What's amazing about our business is at the time when you look at it, completely devastating. But then when you look at where your career is after that, like Ray and what happened to him, you almost want to send a fruit basket <laughs> to the people. Worked, at, out, worked out okay for him. At News Radio because <laughs> it worked out okay. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. 
So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.